Claritas is an industry leader in providing brands, agencies, and publishers with a complete closed-loop marketing platform to help marketers identify the right potential customers more precisely, deliver more effective multi-channel campaigns across audiences' preferred channels, and optimize campaigns more accurately and efficiently through a robust attribution and incremental lift analysis measuring both online and offline channels, including podcast, digital audio, and advanced television. Claritas's offerings are strengthened by the recent acquisition of Arts AI, integrating AI-powered technology to underpin an already robust identity graph, which fuels the accuracy, effectiveness, and efficiency of all their solutions. Claritas is committed to being an independent third-party partner, providing marketers with an unbiased and objective approach for building, executing, and measuring online and offline marketing campaigns. Find out more at claritas.com. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is John Steinloff. John is the chief of U.S. advertising sales. He runs the whole Warner Brothers Discovery empire. It's a big, big job, and John's been in the business a long time. It's rare, John, that I get to talk to somebody who graduated from college ahead of me. So you are about three years ahead of me. We both went to school in the South. I think you were a Duke, and I was just uh, below you at Emory in Georgia. So it's good to have you here, John. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. So, John, uh, one of the things that people say about you when they talk about John is they talk about leadership. And uh, that's a subject that we don't talk about a whole lot here on Great Minds. But I thought with you, it might be a great place to begin. You say it about others uh, on your team. Others say it about you. And I know you studied that as part of uh, studying management science at Duke. But I'd love to begin in these challenging times by talking about leadership, where it comes from for you, who influenced you there, and who are some of the leaders, John, who you look up to even today as a senior exec at you know, one of the most important players in our business. I think leadership took on a whole other meaning during uh, 2020 through 2022. Um, no one knew what it would be like to work from home completely. For a couple of years and we were coming out of a relatively new merger between discovery communications and strips networks that was a 2018 merger and 18 months later we're all home trying to uh, keep the culture keep the momentum and spending a lot of time worrying about each other and it was really a time of looking out for people's health more so than anything else. The health was the number one concern, which is odd for, for a business environment. But that's where we found ourselves. And I remember the first year, and I was new because I had come from Scripps. So we were acquired by Discovery, and David Zaslav was a new CEO for the people coming over from Scripps. And what impressed me the most about David, among many things, was how he handled the first year of the pandemic for our company. And I think leadership really stood tall. Uh, during that first year. And we were um, meeting on Zoom all the time. But what he liked to do is he liked to bring the company together at least once every couple of weeks. And this was, I think we were, 
about 10,000 employees globally. He would bring us together every couple of weeks in a town hall with always with the guest speaker, someone from the company, some on-air personality from the company, an athlete or a business person. I remember we had the C, uh, former CEO of Goldman Sachs one week, just talking about how important it was to stay connected to each other during that unprecedented time. So David, you know, David impressed me so much, but as a new person in my life, I didn't know him really until I started working for him at 18. But that's really, I think leadership is more important in difficult times than, than in good times. Um, it's, it's easier to run a company, easier to run a team when things are going well. But when things aren't going well, how do you motivate people? And, and that's a, a challenge that I've learned a lot about during my time going through the ups and downs of my career motivating people on your team when things are not looking great for the next say foreseeable future that's a sign of a real leader no question i think uh, i'm a big admirer of uh, david zaslav and i think he had a great mentor in john hendrix he had john hendrix he had john malone he had uh learned a lot from uh jack welch and bob wright so those are the people he talks about the most that influenced his career. Yeah, a a absolutely fantastic. Coming out of NBC and then, and then his, you know, his first 15 or 16 years at, Dis at Discovery before we became Warner Brothers Discovery last year. Right, right. Great, great stuff. So let's dial the clock back a little bit. You had a, a, a interesting early move in your career working in ad sales at ESPN right in what was really the earliest days of ESPN. Uh, did you always want to walk in sport, work in sports? And can we talk a little about that early tenure going back to the mid-80s uh, when ESPN was far from the colossus that it would become? Yeah, I, I always wanted to work in sports, but I never thought I would. And in 1985, I had that opportunity. I come from a sports family. Uh, my family's business was retail sports in the tri-state area here in New York. And you might remember the brand, Matt, it was Herman's. Absolutely. And that, that was a family business. I grew up around that. So I, I had sports in my DNA. Um, and when I got back, you mentioned I went to Duke and I lived in Westchester County and came back. And I remember one day um, my father cut an article out of the New York Times. And it was about this brand new sports cable television network, 24-7 sports in Bristol, Connecticut. I really didn't understand what all that meant because back then sports was just whatever ABC, CBS, and NBC put on the air on Saturday and Sunday afternoons, and there was no cable. Um, and then didn't get a job there at the beginning coming out of college, but five years later, I was able through um, my background in advertising agency TV time buying um, with a more of an emphasis on sports than anything else because of my background, my family background. And I got to know the people at ESPN in 85. And I got there right around the time that Capital Cities was acquiring ABC, which was somewhat like Discovery acquiring Time Warner. That's a, a company that's a fraction the size of the, of the acquisition. And Capital Cities was a really well-run station group. So I remember coming in and it was all changing. And we were now part of ABC. ABC and ESPN were, were in the same company. And then when Cap Cities came in, thought of ESPN more strategically. And uh, I remember going there and saying to myself, um, 
this is going to work. And I just had a feeling that it would work. The first inkling I got of that was watching college basketball. We had this franchise called Big Monday. And it was mostly Big East and Big Ten games on Big Monday. So playing off the big, big, big. And as a college basketball fan, there weren't a lot of us in New York at that time. I started looking at this and saying, if they can get these kinds of games, like a Syracuse-Georgetown game in the Big East when Patrick Ewing was playing and Pearl Washington was playing, if you can get those kinds of games to nationally on, a, say, a 25 or 30 million home platform, which they had then, that's an example of the kind of inventory that we're going to have on this network going forward. Uh, it's going to go very far, and it did. And I think the, the biggest milestone in my five years there, the biggest milestone was the, acquiring the first TV rights package for cable to the NFL. And that was in 87 and 88. And that was really exciting to see the NFL um, trust a cable channel you know, with its inventory. And, and the way it reminded me last year when Amazon got the Thursday night package for the first time, the first time a streaming service had exclusive NFL regular season games. So that was the same kind of uh, event that happened back in 87, just happened to be 35 years later. Are you amazed at what that business has become and the growth in the sports business? Uh, I too remember Big Monday. I was a huge fan of uh, that Karnaseka, John Thompson era in the Big East when it was one year, I think it was 85, when three of the four teams in the Final Four came out of the Big East. Uh, you have the benefit of time and reflection. I know you worked on sports as well at SNN and, and Turner and at other points in your career. Are you amazed, John, at, at what it's all become? I never thought it would be the dominant form of content in ad-supported television. I would never, I would never anticipate that. But entertainment was such a big dominant uh, genre of television in the first 30 years of my career. And it's really changed, I think, the Netflix effect. Netflix taking such a big share of entertainment programming, scripted dramas. They made their name on scripted dramas and they were able to get scale in the US and globally at $12 a month, $13 a month, no commercials. So Netflix was almost too good in its first five years. And it started pulling a lot of the entertainment away. And another thing that happened in all, during that time is gambling on sports became legal in many states. So it's the combination of, of entertainment moving more to on demand and streaming, sports being in real time, so the ads are seen live, the viewership is live, there's very little delayed viewing of any sporting event. So you have this live live event with incremental viewership coming from maybe some people gambling, fantasy football or, or just legal betting in 25 or 30 states. And then this live viewing. So it's, it's share just became so big. We always thought, I mean, in the early days of ESPN, we always thought it had the leverage with the industry, the cable industry. Um, that the sports fans were not going to want to miss any games and they were, weren't always going to go to the sports bar. So sports became the most important part of the cable package as well. Right. But uh, no, to answer your question, Matt, I never, I never saw it becoming what it now is. And, and even, you know, we here at, at WBD, we're, we're, we have a tremendous sports portfolio. We have nine more years with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. We have two more complete years with the NBA and all the way through to the uh, conference finals. We have uh, six more years with the NHL and six more years with MLB. We have a new package with the men's and women's national soccer teams. Uh, so 
we have, we also feel a lot of a lot of uh, growth coming in women's sports. So that NCAA women's final at LSU Iowa game that was played it was played on ABC on a Sunday afternoon right in the middle of the Final Four weekend got 10 million people to watch a women's college basketball game which is remarkable and we saw the same thing with the Women's World Cup and now the WNBA doing really well a lot of growth so. We're investing in women's sports here, and we think that's going to be an area that advertisers are going to uh, start to pay more attention to. Yeah, I could not agree more, and I think the constant is people want to watch sports live. That was true in the 80s and is true today in, in 2023. You know, we had a great, great time years ago. Uh, the Paley Center for Media honored John Hendricks, and David was very involved and John was an early supporter of women's sports. Do you remember the WUSA, the short-lived Mia Hamm, Brandy Chastain Women's League? Soccer. Yeah. Women's soccer. Uh, yeah, barely remember it. But. Yeah, so it only lasted a couple years, but it was backed by cable companies. So John was one of the backers, Time Warner at that time uh, backed it, ironically, now all part of the same company. It didn't take... But I think now what we're seeing is a real renaissance in women's sports. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think that will continue to be a high growth area. And we'll dig in more to your, to your sports full portfolio, which is tremendous. And in, in the last two weeks, um, as we record this, the two biggest stories in sports the last two weeks, Dion and Taylor Swift. Yeah. Yeah, no question. No, we were at the Jet game last night. I took my daughter and, you know, she was all over it and we were not there for the football. It was for all that, all that stuff. So uh, you mentioned Herman's. I can't gloss over that, John, without asking you, because it was such a big part of my youth. I remember going to uh, Herman's stores. I guess it was Herman's was even before Models was really uh, a business. And now, sadly, neither. That was your family business. Yeah, my family started Herman's in the 1930s in Manhattan. Started with two stores, one on West 42nd Street and one downtown on Nassau Street. And then the third store, which really turned the business um, really into a major power, was in Paramus, New Jersey, in the Garden State Plaza, opened in 1967. Um, and that caught the attention of a company called W.R. Grace, which acquired the business, acquired the three-store chain from my family, uh, bought, a, bought it outright 100% in 1967. And then my father became the CEO of the company under the new ownership. And between 1970 and 1980, expanded from three stores to 100 stores. Uh, so I have to ask, was there a Herman? There was. Herman Steinloff was my grandfather's brother. Two, two brothers started it in the 1930s, Herman Steinloff and Edward Steinloff. And Edward was my grandfather. And well, I, I, have, I, I don't know what context, but it, Herman's came up over the weekend we were talking about it. And I think we were talking about mass transit. And when I grew up in Queens, I know you were in Yonkers, you know, there were certain buses you could take where there weren't a lot of places for us to go. And one of the bus routes from where I grew up in Bayside took us to a Herman's. And that was a very big deal for us. The other one was we could walk to Corvettes, which is another brand that you may remember. But Herman's was more exciting because we could take the bus and we all loved, all loved going to Herman's. Good memories. Amazing stuff. Okay, so you continue along in sports. You have a great run at ESPN and then go to SNN 
which uh, had a real made a real impression on people, I think, at that time. Well, it was a uh, an idea that I helped create in 1989. Um, the idea at the time was the ESPN Sports Center. Now, there's no internet. There's one ESPN channel, and ESPN Sports Center was the flagship brand, studio brand of ESPN for the first nine years. And but there were a lot of nights where they couldn't get Sports Center on the air because of doubleheaders, tripleheaders, rain delays. Um, and we, we thought that maybe there was an opportunity to take that idea around the buck, to do for sports what CNN was doing for news, what CNBC was doing for business news, what the Weather Channel was doing for weather. Back then, there was the E-Network, the original E-Network was really about entertainment news. So we thought maybe there was an opportunity to fill a void um, in the early days of, of cable by doing sports news around the clock. It was called Sports News Network. I helped run it for a couple of years, um, but it failed. Business failed, but I probably learned as much in those two years. It was 89 and 90. Probably learned as much in those two years as any two years of my career um, by wearing a lot of hats, starting to understand Wall Street, the cable industry, not just the advertising industry, but what it, what it took to start up a business. Um, and then from, from my, when that ended, I came here to, to Turner Broadcasting, to the original Turner Broadcasting, where I now sit today. And I, I worked at Turner Broadcasting from 92 to, 2000, 92 to 2000. And in the middle of that run, we were acquired by Time Warner. And Turner Broadcasting was an independent but public company controlled by Ted Turner. And in 96, Time Warner was having a, a difficult stretch with its stock. Time and Warner had merged, I think, in 89 or 90. And then 95 or 6, the CEO of the company, Jerry Levin, found the stagnant stock and he wanted to get back, you know, wanted to get into the cable network business. And that's what we were doing. We had TBS, we had TNT, we had CNN, we had Headline News, we had Cartoon Network, we had Turner Classic Movies. So uh, Levin acquired the Turner company from Ted. And if the new company we called, the new company was called Time Warner, same as the name of the old company, but we were now wholly owned by Time Warner. That merger really worked well. So I saw that one up close from 96 to 99. And then at the beginning of 2000, Levin, still the CEO, said, I need to get an internet valuation for this company. Because that was at the peak of these internet stocks flying high. And the company that he sold to was AOL. At the beginning of 2000, it was announced. And I left around the time of the AOL announcement. It wasn't there for the closing, which happened in early 2001. But I made a move at the end of my turn of broadcasting when I made a move to a, a company that had been in the media business since the 1880s, and then mostly in newspapers, cable systems, radio stations, TV stations, also wanting to get into the cable network business, and had launched HGTV and had acquired Food Network in the late 90s. And they were looking for what I do, advertising sales experience. And I had the resume from ESPN and from Turner. So I got hired there to help run the ad sales organization at what was called Scripps Networks, worked on HGTV and Food Network, stayed there for 18 years at uh, helping eventually the president of ad sales for the Scripps Networks. There were six of them at the end. And then we were acquired by Discovery in 2017 and 2018. So if you follow, the, follow my, my journey, it was Turner to Scripps to Discovery the Warner Brothers Discovery, which is really a roll-up of the last three companies I worked for, Turner, Scripps, and Discovery. And I found myself in, in April of 2022 overseeing the ad sales organization of 
three companies that I had worked for separately now all together. It's a, it's, it's a great story. And, and let's dig into Turner a little bit more. And I know we'll talk about it in terms of the global sports portfolio that you referenced. Uh, we got to do a lot of stuff with uh, Turner through the Goodwill Games, which I'm sure you recall, and spent the summer of 94 in St. Petersburg. Ted was very much still running the company, or very active at that time. And that was a really special culture. And Ted doesn't get talked uh, uh, about enough, I think, his influence and his vision uh, going back to CNN and how he took a business and what was then, as you recall, Superstation TBS that uh, made the Braves really a national brand, uh, but a, a tremendous visionary. And you were there for all of that or an awful lot of it, I should say, at a, at a pretty big time for the company. I read, I read in your bio that you worked on the 98 Goodwill Games, which was here in New York. Yeah. Um, and, and I also worked on the 1998 Goodwill Games because that was during my tenure at Turner. Uh, but the, the origins of the Goodwill Games is an interesting story. Um, in 1980, the Olympics were in Moscow, the Summer Olympics were in Moscow, and the Russians were at war with Afghanistan. And Jimmy Carter uh, refused to send the American Summer Olympic team to Moscow. Uh, we boycotted the games. And Russia returned the favor in 1984 when the Summer Olympics were in Los Angeles, and they didn't send their team. So we went through two Summer Olympics without the US and the Russians, probably the two best sports countries at that time. So Ted, in 1984, when he saw what was happening, said, I'm going to have the real Olympics. I'm going I'm to start my own Olympics, and it's going to become the real Olympics. He called it the Goodwill Games, but he only invited two countries, the United States and Russia. And the first one uh, was in Russia in 86. And then it came to Seattle in 90, back to Russia in 94. And then the one you helped acquire for New York City was in 98. Yeah, it, it was such a great event, and, and you nailed the story exactly right. It it had been back to 1976 between East-West Olympic competition, the Montreal Games. We wrote the bid for New York. We did not get to run it. When Harvey Schiller came in, he had his own view on how it should be run. Uh, but we got a bunch of stuff built that's still there. You'll recall the Aquatic Center in Eisenhower Park and the track stadium. We wanted all that, John, in Flushing Meadow. And it's interesting to watch what just happened uh, with the, um, there's a huge global cricket event that's coming to America. Uh, I'm imagining, uh, imagine cricket's part of your global portfolio somewhere. And uh, they wanted it in the city proper and it was the same issue. It wasn't Flushing Meadow, it was Van Cortland Park where there's a huge community and they just did not want it. And it ended up going to Eisenhower Park in Long Island, which is where we, built the aquatic center because I couldn't get the land on 1300 acres, some blades of grass of which in Flushing Meadow have not been walked on since the World's Fair in 1939, but we still couldn't get it done. Talk about that influence in your career, Turner to Scripps, and what got you to Scripps? You ended up staying there for the better part of two decades. Um, it was new. It was a a media company that I said has been, has been around for 120 years, but this was a new venture for the Scripps family, for the board. Um, and I was able to help build the culture. A lot of people joined Scripps networks around the same time in the ad sales business, but we all saw the same thing. We all saw the power of the HGTV and Food Network brands. 
two of the greatest brands ever developed by the cable industry. We talk a lot about ESPN, we talk a lot about CNN, we talk more, more so in the past about MTV, but these foundation brands, uh, you know, what they had, what HGTV and Food Network had were, were areas that were surprisingly popular. Our homes are uh, probably the most important asset we own. A lot of people have more net worth in their homes and it's where we live our lives. So the Ken, Ken Lowe, one of my mentors and influencers, um, he had this idea that there should be a 24-7 cable television network about home improvement, real estate, home design, renovation. And people thought it was too narrow to carry a 24-7 cable service, but he was right. Um, and that was the flagship. And then Food Network, another surprising success, was ridiculed at the beginning. You know, how are you going to do... Uh, cooking shows around the clock, it became much more than just cooking. It became a lot of competition and travel, travel-related food, food is culture, Anthony Bourdain. So over time, these two, these two networks grew up together, but we had a great, assembled a great ad sales team, great culture to help build this company around these two networks in, in its newest iteration. And it was upscale, it was highly engaged viewers, the advertising market was robust because there were so many endemic categories within food and home. We used to say you could walk down the aisles of a Home Depot or a Lowe's and everything on the shelf was fair game to sell ads to an HGTV. And the ads almost look like the programming. It's hard to tell when you landed on HGTV. It's hard to tell whether you were programming or you were in advertising because everything looked so seamless. And the rise of the whole celebrity chef culture and personalities that you built at Food Network, uh, I guess, for me, most memorably, Emerald. Well, Emerald put us on the map, but didn't have a long run. Then Rachel Ray came in. She took it to another level, but didn't have a long run with us. But the two that really stood out, Guy Fieri and Bobby Flay. Bobby Flay has been on the Food Network for 29 years. There isn't an executive at Food Network today who's been here for 29 years. So he's out. Bobby has outlasted all the suits. Amazing story. Let's go back to our conversation, John. We started off talking about leadership and you referenced how some of the companies that you've been at have come in and out of your career. Uh, three of them effectively rolled up into your current role at Warner Brothers Discovery. You've had a real catbird seat uh, of some of the biggest mergers in our industry over the past let's give or take 30 years. Give us your take seeing that if you were going to write a book of what goes well and what can go off kilter on a merger, how would you begin chapter one from everything you've seen? Um, number one advice in mergers would be share best practices. Try not to tell people how, how to do things better their way. So I always try to say, don't start any sentence with, well, the way we do it here is uh, always be open-minded to the company that you're now being merged into, having more expertise, more knowledge about a topic than you have. Uh, you know, they call them mergers, but they're really mostly acquisitions. And the acquiring company tends to try to flex their muscles a little too much in the first year or so and try to say, you know, we wrote the check, we know better, we make the rules. That's really damaging to the culture. 
So to be open-minded about what the way others do things and the talent that may exist on the other side of the equation, uh, that's really important to make sure that you're not overlooking some people or some area of the business just because it's new to you. I, I love that answer. And I, I think when people talk about the current iteration of Warner Brothers Discovery, they talk about that culture and how hard and it's been to develop it. But I think it's worked because you've prioritized it and leadership has prioritized building and growing a winning culture in what is a very competitive landscape. I agree, you know, great respect coming from Discovery to, to back to Warner. Tremendous respect for the areas that were Warner strengths that Discovery had barely dabbled in in the United States. And that would be all of Hollywood and HBO, which we now uh, we own the streaming service called Max. Yep. Which was a name change in May of 23. And HBO has never been hotter in its 51 year history string of hit shows we have four dramas up for best drama series in the emmys uh, house of the dragon white lotus uh house of the dragon white lotus uh succession and the last of us four of them in the category never no one platform has ever had four in that category before mm -hmm. so they they H hbo is it's absolute peak in terms of developing hit shows and then we just finished Barbie, which is the movie of the year, maybe the, one of the great movies, one of the best box office movies in a long time, definitely number one box office in the hundred year history of Warner Brothers. So you, when you arrive at a company or back at a company, in my case, called Warner Media, now called Warner Brothers Discovery, and you see the, the great storytelling, even in gaming, we've had the game, the best-selling game of the year in, uh, Hogwarts Legacy, which is part of the Harry Potter franchise. Hogwarts Legacy, Last of Us, probably the best new TV series of the year in terms of audience. And Barbie, all of this respecting the great storytelling, which is a lot of that is West Coast, Hollywood, scripted. That's new to the Discovery Company, as is the entire sports business. We had, we had sports outside the U.S., but we never had a sports franchise or sports rights in the U.S. Great respect for that. And then 24-hour news... Also, we we have that we had that discovery outside the U.S., but not in the U.S. So right. this was really a merger of a, a great lifestyle company that had amazing television brands in the non-scripted lifestyle side, merging with a company that was super strong, Hollywood news and sports, movies and scripted series. So it really completes the puzzle, um, and we're 18 months into it now, and. We're making progress, but we have, we're also up against a difficult economy and Edmar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least one of the strikes is over, which I'm sure helps a little bit. Yeah. But it lasted five months. Yeah. No, no, no. Awful for everyone. So you referenced it. Uh, and when you were talking earlier, John, about those early days at Scripps when HGTV and Food Network were in effect created from scratch. Newer, newer, let's call them brands, newer platforms, I guess is probably a better word. In your current role here, you are the caretaker now of some of the most iconic brands that are 
endemic to American culture. We love the Warner Brothers studio tour. My son lived out in LA and we would always go on one of those. And I remember at the end of the tour, they had in a glass case, Jack Warner's phone book. That was the day of uh, handwritten phone books. And it was open to a particular page. And on that page was Walt Disney's handwritten phone number and many other icons of that day, going back to Jack Warner's earliest days running the studio and, and really one of the godfathers of, of all Hollywood. And uh, excuse me, now David Zaslav sits in Jack Warner's office in Burbank. Yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely remarkable. So talk about the challenge that you have. You've got a lot of new contemporary brands, let's call them digital native in many ways. I love what you've done with Max. Max is very popular in my house, but you're also a caretaker of a lot of brands that are really a little extra special. Let's use those old hokey words. Got to reinvent some of these brands. You know, the, the, the people that subscribe to cable television today, the kind of people, the households that subscribe to cable today, um, are a lot of them are over 40. If you were to do a, a polling of the country for people over 40, about 80% of them would say, I have cable television, I have a cable television package at home. But if you were to ask the people under 40, do you have a cable, a pay cable television package at home? It's, it's less than 50%, it might be less than 40%. So we see ourselves now having to take these brands that have been developed, pick, take a pick, CNN, TNT, Animal Planet, HGTV, Food Network, Discovery Channel. Uh, take these brands, like, like you said, these are they're cherished brands, but we have to reinvent them to people under 40 because they may have grown up watching them in their, in their parents' homes growing up. But I think today it's our goal is really to make sure that we appeal to a generation that is going to be over 40 before you know it so that we can continue to have the kind of longevity with these brands that we've had. CNN's been around for 43 years. We just put CNN, as of last week, we now have a hub on Max called CNN. We are curating a feed, a 24-7 feed of CNN to go onto Max. So the percentage, almost half the country subscribes to Max. So the, all those homes that have Max now for the first time at the push of a button on their on their device can now get access to a 24-7 feed of CNN. So all those people that I mentioned that might be under 40 that don't have cable, don't have a pay cable package, now can get access to CNN through Max. So this is a way to, to appeal to a, a new generation that continue to build that brand. I think one of the great uh, supermarkets in the country's opening in Manhattan, finally Wegmans. I don't know if you've ever been to a Wegmans. Yeah, I know who they are. Yeah, very impressive. Very impressive. And when you walk in there, you're literally overwhelmed by the amount of product on the shelves, the ceiling height, the experience you walk in. It's like a Disney World type of experience. How do you manage, John? You've got such a portfolio of brands, so many uh, genres that you're in sports rights that is uh, the envy of all. I mean, you've got some of the best, best, best stuff out there. 
for you, how do you prioritize where you're going to go? I know you have a great team of captains and lieutenants under you, but it's got to be a little overwhelming, the size and scope of the portfolio just in the U.S. alone that you're overseeing. Well, now, first of all, I do have a great team, so thank you for mentioning the team. Um, but I also have the benefit of having been a part of all of these companies. So I know the history, I know the culture, I know the stories. So if someone says, uh, tell us about the 35-year history of the Travel Channel, I could do that. If somebody says, do you remember when TBS was a superstation and came out of Channel 17 Atlanta, uh, UHF station in Atlanta, and then Ted Turner had the idea in the 70s of sending it nationally on satellite, all cable homes, I, I can tell that story. I remember the early days of HBO when it was first getting off the ground. I remember you know, watching HBO when it was mostly movies, mostly uncut movies, and then had the, they made that big step into, into series. And the first great breakthrough series in the history of HBO was probably The Sopranos, the one that people remember, which happened in the mid-90s when I did work at, as I said, Time Warner and Turner. So we owned HBO then, so I remember. So it, it, it was probably, for me, a little easier than it is for others to know this portfolio because I've been involved with all of it for so many years. But you have to be a student of the business. You have to care about the business. You have to care about the numbers. My process is I'm thinking about the viewer all the time. What's the, what is the viewer watching? And last week we saw ABC try a 72-year-old bachelor in the bachelor franchise. So people who are curious about the business, no matter, no matter what age you are, no matter how long you've been doing this, you pay attention to something like that. How are they doing that? What's the response? Is it going to work? Who's advertising in it? So I'm always interested in content, advertising, and connecting those dots. Great answer. And I love what you said also about ensuring that those great legacy brands are there in the future and that even things that have been around for a century or more have to be reinvented and, and you know, ensure that the future is protected, which I, I, I think is if nothing else, you know, just dead on target. And what I preach to the, what I preach to this ad sales organization here is watch the content live with commercials and promo spots and go on things. Like we own a, a digital property called Bleacher Report. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it appeals to younger sports fans. It's a lot of things that happen off the field, culture and, and fashion that athletes um, are, are doing. Um, so I, you gotta, you gotta sample the product. You gotta demo the product all the time and things change. It's very dynamic. You know, things change from one week to the next. We generate a lot of news. So following the company in the news, knowing what's going on. Sometimes the first time people hear about hearing are hearing about things is through the press. So reading a lot about just about our own company is part of the battle. And then watching a lot of the content and Knowing about the streaming, we, we have two streaming services. We have Discovery Plus and we have Max. And there's advertising available to be sold on both of them. So making sure that you know how those businesses differ. Programmatic advertising lands on these streaming services, which is a big part of our future, targeted advertising. So it's not just knowing the content. It's knowing how technology is affecting how we can uh, be more successful for our ad partners. It's a great story and, and, and so well said. If we were doing a, a global search for a number one draft pick to run this portfolio, John, I think it would be you 
uh, just on the breadth of experience and your knowledge of these brands and where they all come from. So as we start to wrap, you referenced ESPN's acquisition of the NFL as a seminal moment, Amazon more recently with the Thursday night package, somewhere in between those two, uh, the NFL acquisition for News Corp and Fox way back when was critical in establishing that as a fourth national network. We're in an interesting era now in sports rights. A lot of your properties are protected for a number of years. You've got a creme de la creme between the NCAA, the NBA, uh, growing portfolio in women's sports, NHL. Talk about what your crystal ball says for that next round of sports rights as live TV and the live viewer continues to be, you know, really, really the only place that we can look to being sports. Well, I, I think that it's not going to be up, up, up for everybody, sports rights. I pay close attention to what happened with the Pac-12, the dismantling of the Pac-12. Um, the commissioner there uh, presented a deal to the uh, university presidents from the Pac-12. University presidents didn't like the deal. The deal was with Apple TV Plus. They were going to do a Pac-12 season pass for $9.99. And a couple of the powerful schools rejected it. Two of them fled to the Big Ten. Two of them fled to the Big 12. Um, USC and UCLA had already fled to the Big Ten. And uh, they couldn't get the deal done because that was the best deal they, they could come up with at that time right now. So in this economy, I wouldn't say that sports rights are um, incredibly valuable 100% of the time. The NBA may be in a different story. Uh, we just saw WWE Friday night go from go, SmackDown, go from Fox to USA. So maybe that's a signal that Fox doesn't want to be in the WWE business. We don't know because there are more rights to be sold. Um, NASCAR rights are up. Um, so you know, I think there, and the NFL rights are locked up for at least seven to 11, 10 more years. Um, so it, it's going to depend. You know, the Olympics are pretty much spoken for. We have the rights to the Olympics in Europe. But I would say is that it's really, you know, the country is really being split between cable homes and non-cable homes. And the, those who are in the cable universe are going to be there mostly for two reasons, either a lot of wealth and they don't care how much they have to pay for cable every month. And they want everything. Or there's a tremendous amount of sports interest in that household and they want to have all the channels. So I think as we see these cord cutting numbers, we watch the, the cord cutting numbers very carefully. And as, as we sit right now, about 75 million homes in America subscribe to cable and about 45 million don't whether it's satellite, traditional, telco, or virtual, all of that is in the 75. So these, these sports rights owners are looking at the portfolio and they're saying in each media company, whether it's a traditional company with streaming services or whether it's a digital only company like an Amazon, the sports owners, the rights holders, rights owners, they have to look at their sport and say, who can do the best job, not just paying the most, but also who can market our sport the best. So is, is it just that the high bidder, win, high bidder wins? We have in, in Atlanta probably the great 
one of the great sports theory operations ever assembled, especially with inside the NBA with Barkley, Shaq, Kenny Smith, uh, Kenny Smith, and Ernie Johnson. So that matters to the NBA. It matters when you when you can put a show like that together and have it there for as long as that show's been around for almost twenty years, over twenty years. So it's just it's the relationship between the league and the the media company is important. Yeah, so well said, and I think you're right. That longevity uh, speaks to the success of the NBA relationship and TNT and everything that you're doing there. Well, John, this was such a pleasure. I can't thank you enough. You are genuinely one of the busiest guys on the planet, I'm sure, and I really appreciate you taking the time. We uh, absolutely love everything we get to do with uh, your team at Warner Brothers Discovery, and can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us and that we got to talk about Herman's was a, a real uh, unexpected treat. So uh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Matt. a marketing or advertising professional looking to stay ahead of the game? Well, we've got the perfect opportunity for you. Advertising Week New York is back for its 19th edition, and it's bigger and better than ever. Picture this, four jam-packed days of inspiring keynotes, thought-provoking panels, and networking with the industry's brightest minds. Advertising Week New York is where the world's top brands, agencies, and leaders come together to shape the future of marketing and advertising. But wait, here's the best part. You can secure your spot at Advertising Week New York during the exclusive Early Bird Summer Sale. Act fast and save 30% on all past types. That's right, you'll have access to every session, every workshop, and every unforgettable moment. Don't miss this chance to gain insights from the industry's trailblazers, connect with potential clients, and elevate your career. But remember, this sale ends on August 1st. Head over to advertisingweek.com slash New York today and buy your pass. No promo code needed. The 30% discount applies automatically. Advertising Week New York, the ultimate gathering for marketing and advertising professionals. Be part of the conversation, be part of the innovation, and be part of the future. Get your early bird sale pass now and join us at Advertising Week New York.